Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. So welcome back to the show. This is our third installment on the Brian Walsh case, and we probably are going to step away from it until about May. The Brian Walsh case will start to heat up again in May because I'm sure he's going to get indicted and it's going to go to Superior Court. So we will keep you posted on that. Today, we have a really special show for you, and we are honored to have Anthony Amore back on the show. He has been on a couple of times. And he is an amazing, amazing person. He's the director of security and chief investigator at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which of course is the famed 13 paintings that were stolen back in 1990. Anthony has made it his life mission to recover these paintings. And he's also the author to many fascinating books on art theft and art cons. And we're here to talk to him today about the sloppy art con of Brian Walsh. But before we treat you to our talk with Anthony, we need to do a little housekeeping, guys. Okay, we need your help. Laura and I do this all on our own dime, pretty much, except for some wonderful Patreons. And we just want to give a shout out to John L., John R., Todd R., and a member and a supporter who wishes not to be identified, but I want to say thank you anyway. We need your help, guys. We have a Patreon page. Go to Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Okay, if you enjoy the show and want to keep us going ad-free, please, please, please go to our Patreon page. You just type in Ivy League Murders. There's different tiers. Please contribute. Okay, if you enjoy listening to the show, we really, really appreciate it. Okay, without further ado, let's start the show. So, Anthony, we are so happy to have you here again and to have your expertise on our show talking about this very bizarre case and to talk about Brian Walsh's kind of con history. So what we know is that Brian went to a college friend. We know his name is Sam in South Korea. He went to visit him for his wedding. Friend who had a collection of Warhols to allow him to sell these Warhols. And he subsequently sold them on eBay. But my understanding that he switched and sold fakes on eBay. Is, is this kind of what happened here? Essentially, yeah. So this person in South Korea, someone he's known for a long time, he met him when they were both freshmen at Carnegie Mellon, I think, which is interesting because this Carnegie Mellon is basically, you know, just miles away from where Andy Warhol grew up. He had known him for a very long time and he had visited him in South Korea a number of times and was even with this South Korean friend in Las Vegas when the friend purchased some art. He was there with his family, not not Brian, the South Korean friend. 
you said his name was Sam. That's my understanding. Yeah. Yes. So we'll use Sam. So he was with Sam and Sam's family in Las Vegas, and, and they decided to buy some works. And Sam bought some elsewhere, and he bought a few Warhols, not just the shadows paintings, but he also bought a dollar sign by Warhol. And he bought some works by Keith Herring, famous graffiti artist. So Brian went to on one of his trips to South Korea, and he would go for weeks. He wouldn't, it wasn't just like a, you know, a stopover. He would go and spend some time. And on one of his trips, he mentioned to Sam that he could sell the Warhols for him. Brian was portraying himself as an art dealer. And it's an interesting thing because when you, a couple of interesting things, to me at least, number one, that if you look at his career, if you look at Brian Walsh's LinkedIn which is essentially his resume. He has these sorts of jobs that are sort of vague. They're sort of like catch-alls. They're sort of like the sort of things you call yourself when you aren't working somewhere full-time. And he was in the wine business, which instantly makes me wonder, given his art fraud, whether he perpetrated fraud with wine too. And that's just my hypothesis, of course, but you know that's very common as well. So anyway, on one of the trips when he mentioned to Sam he could sell these paintings because he was purporting to be a art dealer, an art dealer. Sam agreed, and he, he had told Sam he can get much more money for them, selling them here. And as you mentioned, Laura, he put them on eBay using Anna's account, his late wife's eBay account, posted two of the Warhol shadow works for sale. And when he posted them, he posted the backs. And, and what's on the back of paintings is almost always secret. Whether intentional or not, it's very smart to keep it intentionally secret. It's an important bona fide, an important identifier for a work of art. This was a great way to sell them. It was smart to show the back because these works had stamps from the Warhol Foundation on them, which is a great imprimatur of authenticity if the stamps are authentic. And the Warhol Foundation doesn't do that anymore. They don't authenticate works anymore because it's such a perilous endeavor to authenticate work. So they stopped. So if you're a dealer and you're looking to buy some Warhols to flip, that's a great selling point that you have stamped ones. And they sold. A dealer in California who's bought art for many, many years purchased these two. They set up a deal. He wired Brian the money and sent a courier to pick up the works from Brian. And Brian sent them back in a case and as soon as the buyer in California opened the case and looked at him, he knew right away something wasn't right. And then he looked at the backs of them and found no stamps. So he knew right off the bat that he was being had. Meanwhile, Brian had no intention of sending any of the money back to Sam. There are excerpts of his diary that the feds included in their court case. And uh, you can see he has these, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, I'm loath to call somebody a sociopath or or what have you, but he does have this sort of soulless attitude towards his lifelong friend writing in his diary about how unhappy and bored he is and how he feels he can make some money off of these people, meaning that South Korean friends. Mentions having stolen a very expensive watch from somebody while he was there. And again, no intention of sending the money that the California dealer had sent to him onto his friend, and he never did, which is just unbelievable. So what happened to the original Warhols? So he held on to those. It seems to me, and again, this is my opinion, it seems to me that what he was probably angling to do, probably, is 
sell these copies he had made. He had copies made by an artist who, who wasn't, for all we know, was not part of some sort of fraud conspiracy, just right. made copies of a painting for somebody. I think he was going to try to keep selling and selling and selling while holding the real ones, which is not unprecedented. I wrote about a guy in my book, The Art of the Khan, named Eli Sakai, who did something similar, had copies made of his original paintings and sold them repeatedly. I would guess, based on my experience, that that's what Brian was was hoping to do and just keep the money every time, totally rip off his friend in South Korea. Finally, his friend had a mutual friend in the United States visit Brian and say, you know, send these paintings back or, or send us the money. And my recollection is that he sent a little bit of the money, but not all of it. So he's, he's a bad guy. And you don't have to couch that term because he's convicted for this art fraud. It's not an allegation anymore. It's a conviction. So you know, he's a fraudster. So I have a question, Anthony, which I've heard come up quite a bit. How often, to me, it sounded odd to be selling such expensive artwork on eBay. Is that unusual? Oh, my God, not at all. If you go on <laughs> eBay today, if I would encourage your listeners to give it a look. And I would encourage them also, if you see something you wish to purchase on eBay, be extremely careful. You know, what you see on the Internet and what you get, as exemplified by the Brian Walsh story, could be two vastly different things. And then you have to try to struggle to get your money back. I've sold art on eBay myself. I like wow. to buy interesting pieces at estate sales and then sell it on eBay. So I'm not saying that you can't buy authentic works there, but I would say that you really have to do a lot of due diligence, ask questions, demand provenance, set up a deal where you're getting, where you're making sure that you're safe. And I know that eBay has worked hard to implement a lot of safeguards, but there are a lot of tricks in the field of fraud in terms of selling things online, not just on eBay, but on any auction site, an internet auction site. So you'll see, suppose you go onto eBay and as an example, you put in John Singer Sargent painting and you might find one and the sale price might be $150,000 for some watercolor. And you think, well, you know, that seems legitimate. And, and you read, and then you go into the section where there's a narrative about the work. And you'll notice it's very, very, very long. And that's intentional because in those long narratives, they bury a sentence that says something like, I don't have proof that this is a sergeant, but people tell me it is. You know, they'll put some little weasel words in there in the fine print, so to speak, to say, hey, I wasn't perpetrating fraud here. I mentioned that. I don't know for sure. Right. Like a little disclaimer. I, Anthony, Laura and I have a couple of Picassos we're going to put on eBay. Just, you know, <laughs> 40 grand a piece. No, and I just wanted, I'm rereading The Art of the Con, your, your excellent book. I'm really, in rereading it, even if this Warhol expert would not have been able to tell that these were fake, science definitely would have caught up with Brian Walsh at, at that Point to show that these were forgeries, because my understanding, and I know I'm kind of asking a, a question with a statement here, but is that Warhol is one of the most forged artists out there. And can you tell our listeners why that is? Sure. First of all, you're absolutely correct that science can tell a Warhol. And if you read the entire case file on Brian Walsh for the art fraud, you'll see the technical analysis done by a firm on the paintings proven that they're not real. 
and I think it's 90 pages long. It's very, very intense. It's interesting if you're into that sort of thing. But you make a great point about Warhols being faked very often. And you'll see more modernist art like his faked than you will some of the great masters. Because if you want to make a fake Warhol, you don't need ancient materials. You don't need a 300-year-old canvas. You don't need organic pigments that were made from plants only found in the Hague, that sort of thing. And then most importantly, you don't need the hand scales of a Vermeer or Rembrandt or Matisse. You need to be able to make these abstract pieces, which are, and forgive me if this is what you like, which is fine, but you don't need the technical artistic skill to make a Warhol that you do to make a Rembrandt self-portrait. So that's why forgers will say, hey, I can try to copy a painting by Velazquez whose technical skill is almost unmatched, or I can make some paint splatters by Pollock. That's why Pollocks are faked so, so often. And that's really what it comes down to. Would If either of you were desperate and decided, I'm going to fake a painting, would you make big rectangles by Rothko? <laughs> or would you say, I'm going to learn how, you know, I'm going to learn how to paint like Titian. I'd advise you to go with Rothko. Yeah, I'm team Rothko all the way. <laughs> I was just going to ask you, though, too, in your really provocative article, which you call the sloppy con of Brian Walsh, you draw a parallel between art cons and murder. And can you, for our listeners, explore that a little more deeply? Or what was your thinking behind that? Well, yeah, it's kind of uh, complex. I'm in the midst of doing a really big independent study about profiling people involved in art crime. And one of the things that really struck me about Walsh and a number of other people who have committed art crime is this, well, first of all, his approach to this crime involving Anna, for which is only an allegation at this point. But a lot of evidence points to him, an overwhelming amount of evidence, in my opinion, points to him. And I hate to even use this expression because it seems disrespectful to Anna, but it was a very sloppy crime in terms of what was found in the house, the brutal nature of apparently, I hate to talk about it, but just cutting her up. And his approach to the art forgery, because it was easily discernible. The person who bought the Warhols from him said, as soon as he opened it, he knew there was something missed. This was even before he looked at the back and saw there were no stamps. So he didn't do a really neat job of this. Just think about the elements of his art crime, right? You show photos of works with stamps on the back. You have access to what the stamps look like, but you only have the artist copy the front. Why not have the artist try at least to replicate the stamps on the back? Mm -hmm. Listen, I don't think you should do any of this, of course. (laughs) But if you were a brilliant criminal, like you see in the movies, you'd say, okay, now turn it over and make the stamps. But he didn't do any of that. It was very sloppy. Part of that, I think, goes to the mindset of what I'm learning about art criminals in terms of their hubris and their ego, right? You know, um, even when it comes to theft, you talk about, I, always, I often talk about Miles Connor being a friend of mine and, and, and me being friendly with the late Al Monday, two guys who tried to be rock and roll stars. Miles, in fact, was one. They just view themselves as something bigger. You take 
Octave Durham, who stole two Van Goghs in the Netherlands, and he's working feverishly to have a movie made about himself. And he sells baseball hats with his name on them. Walsh having this unbelievable, grandiose view of himself. Like a, I see it as a Superman complex, you know, where he goes to South Korea, sees a watch he likes and steals it totally without any remorse, sees an opportunity to rip off a lifelong, very kind friend. The person's very generous to him. He even goes to the guy's wedding a year later, right? And all the while ripping him off to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars. So I see, a, 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 you know, again, I'm, I'm low to use the word sociopath, but other people have in relation to him. And you can certainly make that argument if you're schooled on the subject. Anthony, just for our listeners, can you tell them who Miles O'Connor is? Miles Connor is a man from Milton, Massachusetts, who is, in my estimation, the greatest art thief who's ever lived. There is one other thief. There's a book coming out about a guy named Stefan Breitweiser. People make the, that claim about him because he stole so many pieces. But nothing compares to the pieces that Miles stole in terms of their individual importance in, moreover, this unbelievable list of motives for his art crimes, which don't match anybody else in history. Miles is, is a, a member of Mensa, very, very bright guy. I've spent a lot of time with him. And I think that people would find him fascinating. I consider him a really good friend. And I, I met him because I, I work really hard to speak to art thieves and interview them and see what makes them tick. Have you guys had John Douglas on your show? The no. We've tried. No success he's, yet. <laughs> he's terrific. In, in the very beginning of my career, one of the first true crime books I've read was Mindhunter. And I remembered very vividly how he went about interviewing serial killers to get inside their minds. So I figured if I'm going to do this with art theft, I'm going to interview art thieves. Totally giving the credit to him. I, I'm a great admirer of his. And, and he and I have become acquaintances and communicate often. He blurbed my latest book, and I can't tell you how I fell off my chair when he, when he noted that I've taken the same approach to art theft that he's taken serial killers, and I didn't know he knew that, which was a great moment for me. But that's how I came to know Miles, and now Monday, and countless other guys who don't want me to use their names and continue to interview them. And you're mentioning this new project that you're working on, Anthony. Laura, unless, do you have any other questions? I have one about, more question. Yeah. And what, what, what kind of interests me about this is I can, in a criminal perspective, almost see Brian's approach if he was kind of a transient person. If you were going from place to place, changing names, he was married with a family and a, and a father. I mean, he was so rooted in Massachusetts, it seems odd to me that he would do these things that he was so inevitably going to get caught at. You know, they were such short-term money grabs. But he had done a number of them before with no repercussions. So he ripped right. off his father for somewhat, mm -hmm. somewhere around a million dollars and got away with it. I mean, his right. father disowned him, but he didn't care. He borrowed a half a million dollars from another friend and never paid him back, according to the Boston Globe. Um, so this is a guy who's done this. Listen, you two have spoken to so many people mm. in this true crime field, right? You know, as well as I do, that anyone who ultimately winds up murdering his wife and cutting her into mm. pieces and doing the stuff he did and telling the obviously blatant, provable falsehoods to the police, and this is all according to the police report, 
there's something wrong with that person, right? Oh, so absolutely, yes. Their, their mindset, it's hard to get into their mind because we're rational, normal people. Right. And you don't think the way they do. So that's why he could pull off such a clumsy or try to pull off such a clumsy art crime. And he did get away with it for some time until that that dealer called the FBI. And kudos to him. It also interests me that Anna, Anna was fully aware of all of this. Because I think his name is John Rivlin, who he was the person who purchased the art, had spoken to Anna during this period. Because she was completely aware of this whole Obviously, he was arrested, but even during the time prior, she you know, had been... um, I believe it was her eBay account too that they yes. were. They but were I will say this in her defense: I'm not, I'm not, I'm not oh, giving any responsibility to that at all. Oh, no, I'm no, just no. saying she got drawn into this as well. Right. Well, so like I look at it this way, right? So you know, your husband and wife, and you say to your wife, "Hey, I don't have an eBay account. Can I use yours? I'm going to sell these things." And the wife lets him use it. Absolutely. Months. Right. And then months later, some guy calls and says, I was ripped off. And you think to yourself, oh, well, and she said to him, you need to call. I think she referred him to Brian or to his lawyer or something, which I think is what any wife would do. So I think she was aware something may have been amiss or there was a dispute. But I haven't seen any evidence that she knew that he was doing something illegal. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think that she right. I'm not sure. I, I think she did speak to Don to some of yeah, I, I think, I think, it, I, th I believe it's Ron Rivlin. I, Ron Rivlin. I think, yeah, I, I think well, she definitely spoke to him. Yeah. yeah. So she, so at that point she hears something, but you know, you, when you think of it, we try to put the person in the best light, you say, Hey, some, some guy called me saying my husband ripped him off. I don't believe that he would have ripped you off. And then you pass it on to your husband and let him deal with it. But on the flip side, again, I, it's hard to imagine that these sorts of things that he did are one-offs as if she's never heard any allegations against him before but you just you know talk about the deceased you have to paint them in the best light and give them the benefit of the doubt and these people can also be incredibly charming and manipulative i mean mm -hmm. people people like him when they turn it on can be so you know she may have just really wanted and it's also very powerful when you want to believe something so oh, that's the gist of the art of the con it's yeah <laughs> finding a dupe who just wants to believe so badly right um, but maybe she started catching on to him near the end. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that perhaps him going away to jail was finally broke him. But your perspectives are, are just so fascinating. Anthony, I have to tell you while we have you on here that I gave the woman who stole Vermeer to everybody last oh, thank you. Christmas. And I just told somebody last week to, to read it. And I just, it's just like the book that I can't tell you how much I love that book. Oh, thank you. Thanks a million for that. And I love giving it away because I love talking about it. It's just a book I really, I learned a lot from that. I learned so much from that book, but the IRA, I learned so much. And every time I give it to somebody and they read it, I just, so much interesting conversation occurs afterwards. It's just something I, I've just continued to enjoy as your other books as well. But that book is just really special to me. So thank you so much Brilliant. for that. Thank you so much. I, I, I attribute it to her. I mean, she lived this unbelievable life. I just recorded it. Um, well, you did more than that. <laughs> and you mentioned, Anthony, that you tell us a little bit about this new project. What yes. else have you got going on right now? I'm researching another book. I'm intent. This would fit really well in your podcast. Actually, I'm looking into all the different heists that have happened at Harvard. Oh, that's perfect. Crazy history of really unbelievable heists that have happened there. So I'm feverishly working on that. And I'm also doing this, I've talked often about how I 
early in my career, I started this database of all these different art heists, and I still do that. I have something like 14 or 1500 of them in there, but I started taking a different approach now, and it's much more time consuming and difficult, but you know, doing the same thing about people who stole stolen art to try to really create a good portrait of them. The hard thing about that is the people who you can find out about are usually the most interesting cases, right? So right now I've, I've got say like 15 different thieves in there and, and many of them have stolen art more than once, but that's not the norm. It's just that because they've done it more than once, you know about them, right? So the trick is finding those thousands of other people who've stolen art who did it one time and never did it again and learning about their personality. So that's going to take me a very long time, but it's interesting. Did you get the um, Gutenberg uh, theft at the Widener and the guy who then became a porn star? No, no, yeah, I know you guys covered that. Yeah, yep, yep. I did. That's a great story. And there's also the, the Houghton Library theft, the book theft. I don't know if that's something you've heard. That They keep that very under wraps. And... They keep all of them under wraps. Oh, yeah, of course. So the, I've already done a lot of research into the 1973 Fog coin theft, right? And that's the biggest theft of coins in history by mm-hmm. far. Wow. And there's Derek Box House, the president of Harvard was robbed of paintings. There's obviously the Gutenberg. There was another theft of a Copley painting from the fog, but there's no, it's only details about it coming back, not about it going out. So it's going to take a lot of work, but I have this fabulous research assistant who's been a great help. And I think it'll be a fun I shouldn't say fun because it's crime, but I think it'll be an interesting book for, for people. Fascinating. Wow. We can't wait to have you yeah. back back <laughs> on to ta- tell us all about it. I can't wait. Thank you. This will be a big one. Sarah, didn't your father run one of the Harvard museums? I, he ran the travel program out of the Museum oh, okay. of yeah. oh, he, oh, Natural he wrote, History. Yeah. He, yeah. Wrote, he wrote books about murder in the Museum of Harvard. Did he really? That, yes, he did. Yeah. He has a four-part series murder in the museum of man it's called so that's very cool yeah 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 i i mix up the fictional and the real and my mother worked at the widener no kidding (laughs) yes yeah well so the guy who was the mastermind of the fog theft in 1973 worked at the widener wow he was interested in coins stole some books from the widener about coins and then targeted the fog yes the fog was hit twice that year yeah and it happened to one of the thieves. I think that could be an interesting story. So it's going to take a lot of work. But I think it'll be fun. Well, well, it goes back to, it. it's funny. And I, I'm not including Walsh in this crowd, but, and you say this in the art of the con, it's not my idea, but we do have a certain reverence, don't we, for art thieves a little bit. There's something a little bit sexy, I think, about, about art thieves and art, you know what I mean? It's just... Yeah, it's misplaced, but there is, there's no question, because people will always convolute Hollywood with reality. So the instant you hear he stole painting, the image in your mind is not of some grizzled, violent, depraved jerk who also steals drugs and from pharmacies and does home invasions. It's someone who's more refined. But again, that's that's Hollywood version. Right. It's like George Clooney in like a suit with like the briefcase. And sure, of course. It's very sexy. <laughs> it's, 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 Never no, happens. It's like some strung out junkie from Chelsea. You know? Right. Yeah. And, and his job is a consultant. <laughs> yeah, consultant. Right. Yeah, exactly right. 
Well, Anthony, thank you so much for, for coming on again and, and speaking with us about this. And, and as, as soon as Sarah gets back, we're going to go and uh, visit the museum. Oh, yeah. We're always here, guys. We're not going anywhere. So. We're so close. We we're not going to change. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks again, Anthony. Thanks again, Anthony. Thanks, always well, fun. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So before we go, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of people. I wanted to give a shout out to the brand Avoca. It's V-O-C-O-A. It is a non-dairy, gluten-free cocoa substitute, and it's delicious. There's brownie mixes, and there's also a hot cocoa mix. So please, it's V-O-C-O-A, and highly recommended. The other shout out I wanted to give was for our friend... Rob Jones. We've been having so much fun with Rob Jones. He has an awesome podcast called Cigar Talk, and he and his buddy Brian just shoot the breeze. They are so funny. And if you're into cigars, it's really super, super, super cool. And they're super low key and they know a lot about the cigars and they discuss them. And it's a lot of fun. And so if you don't like fun, you shouldn't tune into their podcast, Cigar Talk. But if you do, you might really like it. Anyway, we're going to go down to Texas sometime in May, hang out with Rob and Brian and Rob's brother, Russ, who is the UPS driver. He does dances and he's got a big following. And anyway, we're just thrilled to have made this connection and really fun. And it'll get us out of our stodgy old New England ways. So anyway, also, Wanted to let you know that we're going to have a, an episode coming up where we recap the Murdoch case with someone who's been with Seton Tucker, who has been on the inside of the Murdoch case, even before it was the Murdoch case. She's a local and she has been on top of it. So we are going to have a great episode with her just recapping it. If you've seen the Netflix special on the Murdoch murders, this is just going to give you a sense of the of the overall case. And she's right in there inside it. Anyway, enough from us. We love you guys. We love your support. Please, please, you can give us a dollar a month. I don't care, but get on to Patreon, guys, okay? Get on to Patreon and, and, and sign up and support us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Murder, murder, murder.